even before BuzzFeed, when I would talk to people about what was going on on the internet, they said, if anyone understands viral media, it's Jonah Peretti. What did you learn in that era? What, what lessons did you take away from Huffington Post? Uh, I mean, Huffington, so, so before, before Huffington Post, I was making viral things on the internet. I, I, um, the first thing that kind of ex exposed me to the fact that you could reach millions of people through, through sharing and social is that when I was at, MIT, at the MIT Media Lab in grad school, um, I was procrastinating writing my master's thesis and I ordered a pair of Nike shoes that, with the word sweatshop on the side. So they just built this, this thing where you could customize your shoes and I wanted to see would they send me a pair of shoes if it said sweatshop on the side. And um, the next day they sent me an email and it said, you know, the word sweatshop is inappropriate slang. And so I responded and I said, no, actually sweatshop, um, it's in the dictionary, it means a shop or factory or workers toil under unhealthy conditions. And then they wrote back another excuse and we kind of had this back and forth. And at the end of it, they said, look, we reserve the right to not send you shoes with the word sweatshop on it. You have to change the ID. And I said, that's fine, I'll change the ID, but can you at least send me a picture of the 10 year old Vietnamese girl who stitches my shoes together? <laughs> And then they, they didn't write back after that. Um, and so this was in 2001, January of 2001, before YouTube, before Facebook, before Twitter, before people thought about things going viral. But if you remember into those uh, dark days of social, there were these things called email forwards. And so I pasted this together into an email, sent it to a few friends, and it became an early uh, email forward. Ended up getting passed on from person to person. Uh, ended up on the Today Show, even though I knew nothing about sweatshops, um, on, um, debating sweatshop labor with Katie Couric and Nike's head of global PR, uh, and thinking like, how is it possible that a student with no connections in the media was able to reach millions of people around the world just by, by sh making something and share, sending it to a few of his friends? And so that really became a thing that I've been working on or a problem or idea that I've been thinking about for a long time. Concepts like six degrees of separation in small worlds where people are connected to everyone else through only a few jumps. And, um, and the fact that um, gatekeepers are no longer necessary to reach big audiences. You don't need to know someone who owns a printing press or a broadcast pipe to reach a huge audience. And so when I came, when I started, when I partnered up with Kenny and Ariana um, and also Andrew Breitbart, yep. which is a, another, uh, relevant name these days. Um, I, uh, we, you know, my sort of focus was on growth, on the tech and, and on growth and how do you make something that will grow. And previously I'd made things that would rise and then crash. Um, and then, uh, you know, like you would, an email forward, you'd see it and once you read it, you didn't need to go back to it. Um, or I made another project called Black People Love Us, another thing called The Rejection Line. They would always, they were, they were like stunts. They would go big and then they'd crash. With Huffington Post, it was really a test of can you make something where you're constantly creating things, constantly launching things, and have it grow and, 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 and keep the traffic and continue to grow. Was, it, was the magic of what you did in the email era, was the magic writing? Is it that you had clever stunts? Or what is it that drove things to go viral? I mean, part of it is the, is the network. Okay. So one reason that I, I had three in a row hits that went huge vi virally in 2001, 2002, 2003, was that nobody was trying to make things go viral. Right. So there was this huge network and there was no competition. You could, you know, people were thinking of media as something for television or print. Or, and on a few of us, um, I worked with my sister, with Zay Frank, who now I work with at, at BuzzFeed, were thinking of, of the internet as a, and viral media as a new form of, of media. And these networks were totally open and people would see something and they'd say, well, I'm gonna share this. And it would reach huge audiences in part because 
we were some of the only people doing it. This, this sort of early viral media scene was, was mostly people doing it by accident and very few people following it and trying to understand it. One of the things that surprised me, Jonah, and I don't know if you had any experience with this, I guess I'm sort of one of those naive guys who just think the world is an open place and everything just kind of works nicely. When I first un discovered the underbelly of the internet was Dig, and what I found was there was a group of people on IM, they would all communicate with each other, and they were like the grandmasters of Dig, and when a story came into that group, they would amongst themselves IM each other, and then everyone would upvote, and because they had authority, it would get upvoted higher than everyone else. And then people started taking money and getting paid to do that. And I think you want to think all this stuff is like the best stuff rises to the top. Do you have any experience with watching either these rings or the people forming to make this stuff go viral? Well, I mean, I remember back in, in, in HuffPost days when, when um, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were in the primaries competing with each other, that any story that, that was positive about Barack Obama would make it to the front of DIG, and any story that was um, negative about Hillary would get buried, you know, or, or sorry, would, would, would get also make the front page. Okay. So it was that, they were, it, that, that circle was very pro-Obama and very anti-Clinton. Um, and then there was also people who were, you know, would, would reach out to us and say, hey, do you want your stories on the front of DIG? You can pay us, and we never did that at Huffington Post. Um, the most thing that we ever did years ago was, was um, we noticed that if we bought paid stumble upon traffic to a story that was surging um, on Dig, that, had, that it would have a much higher chance of making it the front page. So there was this like arbitrage between like stumble upon traffic would drive Dig votes to get something to, to the front page. Um, but it was a real problem for Dig that there was a whole a whole network of of actors trying to game game the platform and only one front page for them. So going back many years, more than a decade, it sounds like you kind of knew the media business could be gamed and was gamed, or at least <clears throat> groups of people could influence the way coverage happened as opposed to maybe having more balanced coverage. Well, like talking about the Obama-Hillary, what you said was there was a group of people kind of controlling what ended up on the stories that had a preference that ended up influencing the coverage. Yeah, I think that there was a moment of utopianism where people thought if you, if, if you get rid of the gatekeepers and you make it possible for people to share content and that, that somehow that leads to um, a, a democratic, um, open, con, you know, connected society. And Diggs, Dig was a, was a poster child for it because they would always talk about democratic media and it's the people powered and it's not about the, the, the gatekeepers. Um, I think that it's, it's more complex than that and I think we're at a state right now in media where there's a, a dystopian path forward and there's a, a, um, a really positive, exciting path forward for digital um, and you know, either one is possible. What do you think the responsibilities of the platforms are? You have been very successful across many different platforms. You know how they work differently, uh, each of the various platforms. There's a lot of debate in the last two months about the role of platforms to help you differentiate real and fake news, um, making sure that uh, People aren't planting fake stories and buying fake stories and rising the top. What, what's the role? Do, is Facebook a media company? Do they have a responsibility or any of the other platforms? 
Yeah, we all have a responsibility. I mean, BuzzFeed, we, you know, because we create content, we take responsibility for all the content that we, we create. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a platform and you're not making content, you're not hiring journalists, you're not hiring people to make, make any content, um, and all of it is being either um, provided by other media companies or, or by users, um, it's harder to take responsibility for your content. And so I think um, if the economics are improved for, for people who actually make content, that will lead to higher quality content, better quality content, um, and, and that's, I think, one of the big things that needs to happen in the next, next few years. Pu the, the platforms have become very powerful, and if they don't share some of the spoils with media companies that are making content, you end up with very low-cost content. And when you have very low-cost content, it opens up all kinds of opportunities for fake news and for, for people gaming it. But isn't, isn't that the challenge itself? It feels like every platform, when it emerges, as it's growing and it knows it needs to compete with the 800-pound gorillas, they are super content-friendly, super influencer-friendly, roll out the red carpet. As soon as they develop power, now they're starting to say, well, let's make sure the economics go to us, not these people. In a way, the analogy I like to use, because it's a non-media example, is Walmart, right? Like once you're Walmart, you earn the right to kind of say, well, I want to do my generic brand and I'm going to start pushing these other brands where I don't make margin of the side or you got to pay me slotting fees if you want. Like it feels like the platforms themselves, when they become really powerful, have more power than the content. I, I don't know. We've seen kind of the opposite, actually. When we, when we first started BuzzFeed and we'd meet with VCs, they would say, well, are you going to have to pay Facebook to distribute your content? You know, are you going to have to pay the platforms? And I would say, you know, I think the platforms will end up paying us. Um, and if you look at the cable industry, you know, in the very early days of cable, uh, there were um, examples of of, tele, of networks paying carriage to, you know, paying the carriage going the other way, paying the, to, to be aired on the cable network. And then a lot of it went to neutral, where the, the, it would be free to air, to, you know, to, to, to get carriage, but you would, and you'd monetize through ads. And then it flipped the other way, where now billions of dollars go to the programmers because the cable operators know that if they have really excellent programming, that more people will sign up for cable, they'll use it more, and they'll pay more, they'll be willing to pay more. So I, I think we're seeing now that. We're getting paid to create content by Facebook, by YouTube, by Snapchat. You know, we're, we're actually doing partnerships that are, are generating revenue on those platforms. And the trend is going towards generating more revenue on those platforms, not less. Um, so um, I agree they have a lot of power, but I don't think that, that necessarily it's in their interest to use that power to, to make content as cheap as it possibly can be because that's when you have the Macedonian teens able to build a business creating fake news um, you know, because the, the Google AdSense is, is, is uh, you know, the only way you can monetize content. Um, I think you were amongst the first people, and I don't want to misrepresent you, so feel free to say if I get this wrong, but one of the first people to obsess less about owned and operated websites. So media companies really cared a lot about driving audiences to their website, their URL. And you seem to kind of flip the model and say, it's like the platforms are where all the eyeballs are gonna go, so we're just gonna excel in all the platforms. Am I getting that right? And do you think all media companies need to think that way? And what fear do you have about the relationship between platform power and customer? I mean, every company has platform dependencies. And so I, the way I see the industry right now is that almost all of the economic value is on, in the mobile stack. 
You know, that's where, that's where all the growth and economics are now. It used to be that, you know, the handset maker or the chipset maker was where all the excitement and action was and who's gonna, gonna win that battle. Then it, it, it slowly moves up the stack where, where you know, the, the operating system becomes important and then the apps, more, most recently with all the battles between Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and the various, various app providers were where the action um, uh, was. And so I think now what you're seeing is it's starting to move up the stack more to content and content is becoming an uh, increasingly important part of, of how you d uh, distinguish um, yourself in the mobile stack. So you see all the you know, Verizons and T-Mobiles and AT&Ts trying to get into content and buy content because they, they want the content to help them not be commodified. You see, as I mentioned before, all of the, the, the YouTubes and, and, and Snapchats and Facebooks paying money for content, which they've never done before, because content is a, is a, is a thing that can differentiate you. And, um, if you have one layer of the mobile stock on lockdown, you want to actually have something to, to defend that and pr protect it from being commoditized. Yeah. Um, and so I think everyone, you know, if you're Facebook, you're terrified that you don't own, you have platform dependencies on Android and Apple, you know, iOS, and you have um, the carriers might do things with net neutrality and, 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 and preferential, you know, data agree arrangements that could hurt you. So everyone has platform dependencies. We're no different than anyone else. Our platform dependencies are, um, uh, fortunately, are tied to, you know, we have a lot of layers in the mobile stack that want to work with the best content creators, and we, because we're the biggest, best developer of, of, of news and entertainment and advertising media for mobile and social platforms, uh, there's a lot of demand for the stuff that we do at various levels of the, of the mobile platform. When you started, if I'm not mistaken, <coughs> it was a lot of images and some text. Uh, I think you bought Zay Frank's company, am I right? Yep. Yep. And talk about the relative balance you see now in the future of video versus other types of media. Um, I mean, I see, I see, we see a very cross-platform, cross-format, you know, multi-format global future for media. Um, and with, with the, the, this larger, largest addressable market that have, has ever existed with, with social and mobile. Um, video is, I think, going to be a huge part of it. It's about half our revenue now. We bought Zay's company, it was, you know, four people, and that was, you know, four years ago or something. So it's grown very, you know, video has grown very quickly to become a huge part of our, of our, of our business. It's very portable um, format, and it um, kind of surprised me when, when we first started to realize this, but it works really well on mobile. I, you know, just, I always felt like, you know, having to have audio and the screen size and the poor networks would make video t uh, tough on mobile and the technology advanced to the point where it, it was good enough and also formats evolved so things like Batasty which is one of our, our, our big brands a food brand um, you know reaches 500 million people just tasty every month and that a lot of that is consumed without audio off um, so there's a, there, the formats have evolved for the platforms, and so you're starting to see, you know, a lot of really cool new video formats that are really, where, where video is really becoming an architecture for communicating. Not, not, you know, it's videos like the new HTML. It's not, it's not like, um, uh, you know, like a television show or something. If I think about BuzzFeed from its origins, um, and meant as a compliment, I guess I had a very tight branding for a long time as lightweight, snackable, short form, millennial, fun, maybe the original Jonah Peretti, stunt-based, viral videos. Um, 
And I, my instinct is that was a large part of your success. You made a move over the last couple of years to move into politics and to spend money on real journalists and journalism. Is that a lost leader for you? Is that brand building for you? Is that just personal interest? Do you think it's a really important part of the media mix? What drove that? I mean, I think that you're, you, we're seeing a massive shift in the, in the media industry and away from print and broadcast towards digital, social and mobile in particular, and that every major part of the media industry is going to find a powerful expression in social, mobile, digital. So if um, you look at a company like the New York Times, they started a website 20 years ago, so they were ahead of the curve on digital, but still today the majority of their revenue comes from print subscription and print advertising. Um, that's, that's shows how hard it is to shift from a legacy business to, to, to these new models. And so when I look at, at BuzzFeed, what do great media's ha media companies have? They have entertainment division, they have a news division. Um, you have to um, be really great at partnering with advertisers. Um, and, and so news, entertainment, and advertising are these three giant sectors. And so I think of news as often a more long-term bet where, um, and, and news and entertainment have a great history of going well together. So like when Ted Turner started uh, CNN, he already had TBS when it was a slow news day. People could watch baseball and old movies. When there was a lot of news, they could watch CNN. And it was a way of essentially balancing your, your media consumption. Uh, and um, particularly as uh, news becomes a thing that more and more people are consuming uh, in the world right now, you know, having a news division is, uh, is, uh, is, is a really uh, important part of what we do. During the election cycle, as citizens, I think a lot of us were looking at the leaders of our industry, of the tech industry, of the media industry, to speak out, to take a stand against what we saw as race baiting, uh, attacks on the fourth estate, uh, trying to delegitimize de journalism and independent journalism, Many people in our industry didn't speak out. I was um, really encouraged by you. You spoke out and decided not to take advertising money, if I'm not mistaken, from the Trump administration. If I'm right, what led to that decision? How was that received with your employee base, with your advertising base, and has it hurt you? Yeah, so uh, we had received a seven-figure upfront from the RNC, um, and we, we do, political advertising is not a huge part of our business, but, but we take political advertising from, you know, Republicans and Democrats and various other advocacy groups. Um, and so we had this upfront from the RNC, and when Trump won the nomination, we decided to cancel, cancel it because we, you know, part, part of it was, I, I usually think of these, these through the lens of my employees, um, and in, because we create native advertising, we're often producing the content and distributing it. Um, and the idea that my employees, um, who, who many of whom felt directly attacked by the rhetoric on the campaign trail um, and felt that their way of life or their identities were being directly attacked, um, the idea that they would then be assigned to make, make uh, Trump ads and traffic and run Trump ads seemed, seemed uh, uh, pretty unacceptable. And so I made the decision to, to cancel the order, and it was a tough decision to make. Um, 
part, um, not because we were losing money. Um, it was a, mostly a tough decision to make because we're not, part of the nice thing about a church state separation is that you don't vet all your advertisers. You don't look at your advertisers and say, is this hamburger really juicy and tasty or is this company a good company or a bad company or whatever? You, you have a, your editorial and you have your advertising and people, the public generally understands the difference. And so we don't want to be in the position of vetting all of our advertisers, but this was a, a special case where it's felt more about um, our employees' lives and the public's and our audience and our readers' lives uh, and less about a product they might buy. And so we made a decision to, to, to cancel, the, cancel the order. So perhaps as a society, one model, if people feel vulnerable or attacked, is instead of looking necessarily to their leadership to do what you did, if they mobilize within companies and hold their leadership accountable for protecting their interests, maybe that's a model for teasing people out to protect the rights of immigrants and uh, maybe even Muslim citizens or Jewish people or any of this? Yeah, I don't know what the, the total solution is or the, you know, it's, uh, it's, a hard, it's a hard problem to, you know, there, there's, it, it's a funny shift that we, that I, or a, I don't know if funny is the right word, but the shift that, one of the shifts that surprised me was that, uh, you know, all of a sudden having employees say, hey, will BuzzFeed help defend our reproductive rights? Will BuzzFeed help defend, you know, uh, us if, if immigrants are attacked? And generally, as a CEO of a company, I didn't, I, you know, my expectation wasn't that my job would be, um, to have to think about things like that. Generally, the rights of citizens are protected by the Constitution and, and by the government, and governments are in a pretty unique and powerful position to, for example, protect someone's reproductive rights relative to a company. Um, but I think you're seeing uh, a lot of people who ordinarily would not be, uh, who, who are looking to corporations and, and states and local government to protect them. Um, because of what's happening in the, in the you know, federal government and with the Trump administration, which is a, a, a big shift uh, and causing a lot of people to rethink how, how their strategy or their tactics around, around uh, fighting for things they believe in and fighting for their values. There's a pretty powerful person with low self-esteem who doesn't seem to like BuzzFeed that much these days. Has that had any impact on you, or are you worried at all about government relations with your company? Yeah, so uh, the, I think that a lot of us felt tremendous pride when Trump called us a failing pile of garbage. Um, <laughs> and we, uh, within three hours, we had you know, made uh, BuzzFeed branded garbage cans and t-shirts that said failing pile of garbage, and um, we, did a, did a flash uh, sale and raised uh, $25,000 for the Committee to Protect Journalists uh, from the sale of our failing pile of garbage merchandise. Um, and uh, in, in some ways, it's, uh, it's something that makes people feel a higher sense of purpose of their jobs, and, and there's, there's some good things about it, but it's certainly not what we would prefer, and we'd certainly you know, prefer uh, to have a, have a friendly, happy relationship with a well-run, functional sane government. But if we can't have that, um, some people in your industry, your brethren, so leave aside Trump, um, have criticized you for a monumental decision you guys made to publish a dossier about Trump in Russia, 
uh, maybe taking a funny shower or observing funny showers. Um, what led to the decision to publish the dossier, and do you think you got it right? Yeah, so this, this document had um, been given to John McCain, and John McCain had given it to the FBI. Um, the Gang of Eight had, had, all, had circulated and, and all, had all seen it. They, uh, the uh, president-elect and the president had been briefed on, on, on the document. Um, many of our colleagues in the media had had a copy or had read, read the document or aware of the contents of, of, of the document. Um, you had Harry Reid mentioning the document obliquely and, and in an in a open and public letter. Um, and then you had CNN saying that there was a document, they won't tell you what's in it, but it, it's, it's, it's a document suggesting these ties to Russia. So essentially everyone in, in the elite media circles and government um, had read this document and were acting on, on the information in it and were referencing it. Um, but the public had no ability to see what the document was or make any determination about what, what, was, in, what was in the document. And so uh, we had, like a lot of other media organizations, we had this document uh, for weeks. We had reporters working on, on trying to understand what, you know, and, and, and verify parts of, parts of, you know, all different parts of the document. Um, but once it was in such wide circulation and people were acting on it and it was having political impact and everyone had seen it, uh, you know, in elite circles and the public hadn't seen it, we felt that um, it was appropriate to publish it um, with caveats about its, you know, um, it, it having unverified information. In two instances when we published it, we found things that were not accurate in it. So in some cases, we were debunking parts of the document when we, when we, when we published it. Um, and we feel like we, we have an uh, obligation to our audience and our readers to let them know what's going on in the world. And if, if they're seeing um, conversations referencing some document then, that, and without being able to understand what's in it, we felt like we were doing a disservice to our readers. And so we made the decision to publish it. And I feel good about the decision and think it was the right decision. And a lot, following publication, lots of, of further reporting has, has um, happened that would not have been able to happen if, had we not published it. And talk about the decision process. Did you have to involve your, involve your board? Did you have to get legal reviews and legal teams? Like, how does a decision of that magnitude get made? Uh, I mean, we have, we have a, a editor-in-chief who's Ben Smith. We have a great, uh, great legal, legal counsel. And, uh, you know, we, we um, uh, make sure we review those kind of decisions, you know, carefully and, 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 Consider, consider, consider things very, very carefully. Why do you think other media companies have criticized the decision? Because if I, I think even Brian Stelter, who I think is a pretty sensible person, if I'm not mistaken, criticized it or CNN has criticized it. What's their logic for not publishing it? I mean, I think, I think um, Ben, Ben Smith did an interview with Brian, and it's a great interview. If you're interested in this topic, I recommend, you know watching their exchange, because I think it was, it was a, a, a thoughtful and interesting exchange. I think our position, and, or ben Ben's position, is that reasonable people can disagree on, on the topic. The idea that it was um, a, bad, a bad decision, or a terrible decision, or unjustifiable decision, is, is to, to me, seems like a um, very hard to justify. The idea that different people could disagree on it, and that there's pros and cons to disclosing more information to the public, that I think is reasonable, and I think you can be on two sides of that, and, and two reasonable people can be on two sides of it. Last question. You have 
been at the forefront of the last five or six major trends as the media industry has evolved. When you look ahead, what do you see? What do you see in the next three to five years? Are there further changes you foresee that we should be aware of? I mean, I think what you're going to see in the next you know, two, three years is that, is that digital will go from being seen as, as the second tier in media to being seen as the way media is done. Um, you know, we have, we have um, we're starting to see shows, like, you know, so it used to be when you would make a, a show that was, you know, like a mid-form or longer-form thing, on, and, and it was on the web, you'd call it a webisode, and right. it was like second tier, and it's because you couldn't get a TV show. We're now starting to see, uh, we have a show called Worth It, you know, it gets 10 million views every time we do an episode, it's, you know, 15, 17 minutes long, it can have a pre-roll and a mid-roll in it, um, it's uh, two guys who, who, um, who will um, try the low end, the best of the low end, the best of the mid, mid, and the best of the high end. So they'll get like sushi at three places and then talk about which is the most worth it at the end and they kind of drive around the city and go try things. Um, and, you know, it is essentially doing what TV used to do, which is provide some entertaining thing that you watch. The difference is you get feedback from the audience Every single time they suggest new, the audience is suggesting new things that they should do. You can see when people drop off. You can see how people are, are, are you know, where, you know, what they're excited in, what they're not excited. You can see what gets shared. Um, so it's essentially um, like television, substitutable for television, but all these digital advantages are added on that allow you to get data from your feedback, data feedback from your audience, um, and understand your audience better and connect with your audience better. And I think you're going to see across the media landscape in news and entertainment, in a bunch of different areas, the thing that used to be seen as, oh, this is the low cost version of the real media, it's going to flip and you're gonna to start to see really um, uh, tremendous uh, uh, explosion of, of the digital side being where the action is and where people wanna be and where the talent wants to be. And, um, and it'll often be a new kind of talent and, and, and it won't, it'll be uh, uh, transformed by digital, but I think we're gonna see that in the next, in the next two, three years. Well, I just wanna say on behalf of everybody that I know was in search of real leaders in the last six months to stand up for our value system that matters, I'm super grateful for all you do. So I wanna say thank you personally to you for the stands that you've taken, and thanks on behalf of the audience. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Yeah.